6 and 7, Hebrews chapters 6 and 7, two whole chapters and one sermon. Last week we, we covered, we had a really long sermon, I appreciate your uh, patience with that. We covered in detail the arguments around Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, when it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift, to have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. If you want to know what we taught on that, you can go listen to last week's sermon on the website. It's there and available for that. But I'm not going to get into that today, although that warning should stay in our minds in the context of this argument that we're going to make today. But today I want to talk about hope. Hope. We've talked about hope before. Anyone use that word this week? I hope. I hope. Now, how do we, how do we tend to use the word hope when we're, in, when we're talking about hope in the context of a conversation? Yeah, I hope you'll clean your room. That's a good example. Yeah. I hope. How else do we say it? I hope. What else might we say? Another I hope statement. I hope the Seahawks win today. Who are the Seahawks playing today? The Browns. Yeah, they better win. <laughs> what else do we say? I hope. I hope you have a good week. <laughs> I hope I wake up tomorrow. I hope I get better. I hope I'm not sick all week. Yeah, I mean, I hope some of my, my statements, like I hope everyone is at church this morning to hear God's message of hope. That's how I might use it. I hope, I hope everybody's here this morning. I don't want anybody to miss out on God's message of hope. I hope a disease will wipe onions off of the face of the planet. That's something I hope for on a regular basis. I hope they'll leave the onions off of my order. I hope, I have a lot of hopes related to onions. It's something I spend a lot of time hoping for. And yet, uh, my hopes have not yet been realized because everybody still puts onions in everything. We are, we're kind of working with our kids on a regular basis to eat, learning to eat foods you don't like. and. Uh, and I was working with uh, one of our kids about it this a couple weeks ago, and and uh, and I, I could kind of sense that there's some uh, some some hypocrisy, some observations of hypocrisy that maybe I don't eat food that I don't like, and so I had to go back to my childhood and I had to say, you know what, my mom put onions in in everything. She put it in meatloaf. She put it in pizza, and she would cook the ground beef. My mom's probably watching this morning, right, right now, so she's going to hear all this. She would grill the ground beef with onions, sautéed onions, and put it under the cheese. So there's nothing you can do. You cannot get it off of the pizza, right? She would put it in spaghetti. She would, of course, with liver and onions. So I spent a lot of time eating onions growing up, so I, had to, I, I have put in my time eating foods that I don't like. I have every right now to hope to never eat another onion as long as I live. I hope, I hope, I, these are kind of, this is generally how we use the word hope in our time. We, we, we wish is what we mean by that. I wish, I wish onions would be wiped off the face of the earth. I wish everyone would be here. I, I wish this would happen or this person would do this or or this would take place. I wish, I wish it would take place because 
We are uncertain, right? We're hoping or wishing because we're uncertain. We lack confidence. And when we lack confidence, we want to hope in something, and so we hope that something is going to work out. That's how we use the word. But for some of us, there is, I think, deeper hope that we think about. For some of us, our hope is in God and the anchoring belief that he will finish what he started. We have this deep hope that, that God is going to do what he said he would do. For some of us, we have hope in other external forces. For instance, we may have hope in our society that our society is just kind of continuing to evolve, maybe is what we would say, that our society is continuing to evolve and we're becoming more and more kind to one another and looking out for one another's best interests, that society is just becoming a better place. We have hope in our surroundings. Some of us, I think, might have hope in government. Probably the way most of us would use that, that terminology would be we have hope in our particular party with government. We've put a lot of hope in the party that we agree with. And so we think that, that, if, that if, our, if our ideology when it comes to government can take place, I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, but if our ideology can, can become the dominant controlling ideology in government, then we can have hope that things are going to improve and get better. For most of us though, I think our hope tends to be in ourselves. We put our hope in our own ability, our own ability to provide what we need for us. I can trust me. I can count on me. I know what to expect with me. I know that I can depend on myself when I say I'm going to do this. And I know if I'm telling myself the truth or if I'm lying to myself because I know me, I can hope in me, but not anyone else. But even in that, even in maybe some of these bigger, broader concepts that we put our hope in, we would have to say there's uncertainty, right? We are not certain in society's ability to love and care for the people around us, right? We are not certain in government's ability to provide a stable future for us and our families. And we, if we're being honest with ourselves, are not certain that we won't let ourselves down today or this week. So we use the word hope because we're not certain. We're not certain that something is going to happen. And the reason we're uncertain, I think, is because of imperfection or our idea of imperfection, perfect and imperfect. We know that even the people with the best intentions eventually let us down. So if everything goes as well as it possibly could, there's still a good chance we're going to be disappointed. And we know, we realize that we live in a broken world full of broken people who make broken decisions based on broken motives. And we're disappointed. So we would say, I hope, I hope this is going to work out. 
A lot of us right now might be hoping that, that next year, 2020, is going to change the trajectory of our country in one way or another. And our hope is in the outcome of what happens next November. But if we're being honest, there's also a lot of uncertainty in that hope. Because we're just not quite sure about the people. This is what we think of when we think of hope. But if we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 and do it any kind of justice, we actually need to reframe biblical hope. So biblical hope is different from how we use hope in our conversations. Biblical hope is, is not depressing and discouraging. And we would say, I hope, and the reason we want to hope is because we want to hope for a better outcome, but then we know Realistically speaking, that might not happen, and so hope actually kind of becomes a disappointing and discouraging word. But biblical hope is actually not that at all. Biblical hope is the confident expectation in God and his ability to perfectly keep his promises. Biblical hope is the confident expectation in God and his ability to perfectly keep his promises. And this is an argument the author is making in these two chapters. If you remember back to last Christmas in the series we did last Christmas, hope is focusing the present and the future through the lens of God's faithfulness in the past. So I can look at today and tomorrow through the lens of what God has done in the past, and I can be certain that God, because his promises never change, and God never changes, what he says that what he said he would do then is what he will still do today. God promises and always holds up his end of the bargain. So biblical hope is a confident expectation. It's not a lack of confidence. It's not a lack of certainty. It is certainty. It is confidence. But to get there, we kind of need to break this passage down. And so we need to get to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a guy that, uh, that comes up in one small place in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 14. And I got into that in detail in the devotional this past week and the story. So you can go read the devotional, listen to the podcast from last week to get more information on that. And that would be the podcast on, on Hebrews 7, 1 through 10 and uh, Hebrews 7, 11 through the rest of the chapter, 28, I think. But Melchizedek, the author is going to argue that Melchizedek is a, a priest of a higher and previous order than the Levites or the Levitical priests who came from Aaron. His name is actually King of Righteousness. Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. And then he also had the added title King of Peace. He was, most scholars think, the King of Jerusalem before it was the central capital for God's chosen people. And in his description in Genesis chapter 14, it says he was the priest of God most high. And in the story, Abraham paid tithes of, of, the, of the plunder he had just taken from, from getting his nephew Lot back. And he takes 10% of that and gives it to Melchizedek as a tithe, which teaches us that Melchizedek 
was greater than Abraham. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, the argument that the author's making is that Jesus is greater than it all, right? So if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Abraham is greater than the Levitical priests because he was their ancestor, their predecessor, he came before them, so anyone that came after Abraham is, is less than Abraham. And if, and if Abraham gives the tithe to Melchizedek and is blessed by Melchizedek, that makes Abraham less than. So the author has already argued that, that Jesus is greater than Moses, he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than the Levitical priesthood, and a little bit he's going to argue about how Jesus is, is greater than the, the covenant, and Jesus is greater than the sanctuary. The sanctuary Jesus is in is greater than the sanctuary of the Old Testament. The argument is Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is our great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, which wasn't a part of our reading this last week, we actually get the point, we get the summary of what the author has been saying, the point he's been making from uh, Hebrews 6 and 7. He says, now the main point of what we are saying is this. Just a hint, but if the author says the main point of what we are saying is this, you can be sure that what he's about to say is the main point of what he's been saying. And you know, I know that's really deep, right? So... But he says, the main point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest, one in the order of Melchizedek, who reigns forever in the order of Melchizedek, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not a mere human being, referencing how the sanctuary in the Old Testament was set up by human hands. It was a copy, a type and shadow of the real sanctuary in heaven. So he's saying we do have a high priest like this that we've just been describing. This is what our high priest Jesus is. And because Jesus is that great high priest, greater than all of this stuff, we are... I think the argument he's making is we are the people of a better hope. We are the people of a better hope. And I believe with all of my heart what God wants to reassure in us today is that we as God's people are the people of a better hope. That no matter how drastic and dire things may seem around us, we are the people of a better hope. And the reason we are the people of a better hope is because of where our hope is or who our hope is in, and that's Jesus. Jesus has become the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek by the power, in verse uh, 16 or 18 or something like that, uh, by the power of his indestructible life. The power of his indestructible life. So Jesus is the priest forever. He is perfect forever, and he lives forever. He is the priest forever, he is perfect forever, and he lives forever. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 7, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, if meaning it could not have been attained, so perfection could not have been attained from the old way, 
from the old way of life, the old way of doing things. Verse 18 of chapter 7, he says, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect, so perfection was not possible under the old system. And then he says, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. We are the people of a better hope. Verse 28, he says, for the law, the old way of doing things, the Old Testament, the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses. That's what the law did. But the oath, the promise God has made, the security that he has given in Jesus Christ, which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus is perfect forever. He's the priest forever. He lives forever. And because he is those things, we have a better hope. Our hope is in Jesus and what he's done. And in fact, our perfection, and we've talked about this word perfection, perfection is not perfect like we think perfect. There is no such thing as perfect as we think perfect. We would say, you know, can this table be perfect? Well, this table is not perfect. It has scratches on it, and it's not perfectly round. There's no such thing as a perfect circle, just like there's no such thing as a perfectly straight line. There is no such thing as perfect how we typically define perfect. It's a word that we have misdefined. But in, this, in the context of this argument the author is making, we talked about the nautical term, being perfectly outfitted for the voyage, to complete the voyage perfectly. And Jim shared this week on Workplace that it's completed perfectly, to completion, brought to perfect completion. It's finished. It means that Jesus is capable to do what he has been given to do. So if he is the priest forever, he lives forever, and he's perfect forever, that means he's perfectly able and capable to do the task of being our priest forever. So then where is our hope? Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the perfect priest king. Our perfection, our ability to be made perfect, to be made complete, to be made capable of going into God's presence hinges on our ability to place our hope in Jesus Christ to receive the benefit of his work. We are not making ourselves perfect or complete or finished or capable by our own efforts. Jesus has done that, and Jesus could only do for us what we could not do on our own. And because he is the priest forever, because he lives forever and he's perfect forever, there will never be a moment from now, the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, all the way throughout the rest of eternity, where we have to worry that our status with God could change. Because God is perfect forever, priest forever, there will never be even a, a millisecond where Jesus is not doing his job of interceding on our behalf to the Father. And so, even though when Jesus breathed the words, it is finished on the cross, he was talking about the fulfillment of the law, we could also say it is finished for us. 
that work, it is finished. There, there, is, there is nothing that, that can come between us and the Father because Jesus has finished that work. It is complete, it is perfect, and because our hope is in him, we too are finished. We're a finished work. We are complete because of the work of Jesus Christ. So it's not a matter of wishful thinking like we would say, I hope, man, I hope I make it. I hope I, I, hope I make it to heaven. I hope I get there. I, 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 hope that I, I hope that I live the right kind of life that I can arrive at heaven at some point down the future. That is not the way to talk about hope because our hope is in the confident work of Jesus Christ and the work that he perfectly committed, not our ability to perfectly complete the work that we think we need to do to get there. It's not wishful thinking, it's a confident expectation that because God has promised and he cannot change his mind, we are safe. Because God has promised and he cannot change his mind, we are safe. Safe. Hebrews 6.18, God did this so that, talking about the oath, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So we want to take hold of this hope that is set before us so that we can be greatly encouraged. And there are two unchangeable things that secure this hope for us. That is God himself and his word. God himself cannot change. It is impossible for God to change. It's one of his characteristics. He cannot change. He is always faithful. He can never once throughout all of eternity ever be faithless because it goes against his nature and character. He is perfectly faithful at all times. He cannot change. And the same way, his word that he speaks when he makes an oath, when he makes a promise, when he says something to us, his word never changes because he spoke it, it is assured to us. So God gave us two things in which we should have only needed one, but he gave us two unchangeable things to give us this hope to grab a hold of and hold fast to with all of our might. But if our confident hope is not in God, if it's in ourselves or in anything other than God, we're in danger, right? We're in danger of being motivated to pursue perfection by our own methods. And all you have to do is read the Old Testament to know that does not work out so well. But if we place our hope and leave our hope in ourselves and our ability to live a good enough life to get into God's presence, which 65% of Americans, we said last week, believe you can get there if you're just good enough, we think, I can do it on my own. We don't realize the danger we're putting ourselves in because then we're responsible. If your hope is in you, you are responsible to do what's necessary to get there. You are responsible to completely, perfectly finish the work. to justify yourself to be able to be in God's presence. That is terrifying.
But for us who believe in Jesus Christ, who have put our faith in him, our confidence for our being made is based on Jesus' perfect work on our behalf. Therefore, we are the people of a better hope. Not a hope I wish, I, I hope I can do enough to get into God's presence, but I have a confident expectation that God is going to do what he has said he would do. It's a good point to stop and ask ourselves, what's our motive? What is our motive for living a good life or holy living? What's driving us to live the way we live? Are we trying to prove our own worthiness? Are we trying to prove that, that I am good enough on my own? Uh, I'm, I'm going to show the people around me that, that uh, I am better than they are and anyone else who has ever walked this planet, and I'm going to earn by my own merits the status I deserve. Or is our motive to prove that he, Jesus, is worthy because he has proven us to be worthy with what he's done? We're not seeking to prove ourselves and our worthiness. We are seeking to prove the worthiness of the Savior who makes us worthy to come into the presence of God. There's this interesting, amazing, I think, illustration here in Hebrews chapter 6 that really paints this picture. We introduced the idea a little bit in the first week. Let's see if I can find the end of the rope. Forerunner, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where we would not be allowed to go because of our sins. But our hope enters this inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's the, the verse he says right before he gets into the argument of Melchizedek. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. What hope? Well, the hope is everything he's just talked about. The hope that's an anchor for our soul is the oath that God has made by the two things, himself and his word, which he cannot change, we have the certainty of God's promise as our hope. Our hope then is anchored to that nature, that character, that faithfulness of God, and it is firm and secure because God cannot change. So when we anchor our hope to the right thing, we never have to worry that our hope is going to change. We're never in danger of drifting. But this word forerunner is really, I think, incredible. And we talked about the first week, being on a ship out at sea and how this is often an illustration about our lives. We can be on a ship out at sea and we're going our own directions, going wherever we want and oftentimes we, we tend to be tossed back and forth by the waves and we're, we're at the mercy of the storms of life as they, as they come and rock our ship back and forth and, and there never seems to be really any intention other than we're just trying to make it through another storm. 
We realize that there is a harbor ahead of us and it's safe and, and we would like to get there, but it is impossible for us to get there on our own because there is a sandbar that comes across this harbor and, and the way the tide is right now, our ship would run aground if we tried to cross over this sandbar. So what we need is what was called a forerunner. The Greek word is prodromos or prodromos, P-R-O-D-R-O-M-O-S. This is the only place that's used in the New Testament, the forerunner. This forerunner was a, a smaller vessel that would come out to the ship. So imagine with me out to this direction, there is just a wide open sea. The, the waves and the ocean is out there. It's just, it's just sea for as far as you can see. See what I did there? <clears throat> and you look out that way and it's just, there's, there's, I mean, there's no hope of security or safety. Because if you go that direction and if you go any way out in this direction, it's just who knows if you're going to make it. But if you turn back this direction, there's, there's the shore. And more specifically, there is the harbor. And we know what harbors are because we live in a water town. When you drive over, you know, the, over in Jansen Beach, and you can see all the ships that are there safe in the harbor. They're in this safe, calm space of water where the ship isn't really going to be at danger of drifting away. And we want to get to the safety of harbor because that's where we can be at peace and at rest. And we just, we want, our dream is to get into the safety of the harbor, but there is a sandbar that exists between us and the harbor. And if we try to go there, we know the water is too shallow right now because of the way the tides are, and there's no way we can get there. We will run aground. And so the prodromos would come out of the harbor in a smaller vessel that could make it over the sandbar. And he would come out to your ship or to my ship and he would take your anchor, which was usually just a big, a big bunch of rocks that was all tied together back at this time. Just a big bunch of rocks, rocks, a great big rock. And, and he would take your anchor from your ship and put it in his smaller vessel that could make it over the sandbar and he would take the anchor into the harbor. It's too big. Let's see if I can do my, my knot. Last time I did this illustration, the kids asked me after the service, what would you have done if that knot came loose when you were pulling on that thing? And he said, well, I probably would have been embarrassed. All right. So Jesus, our pro prodromos, our forerunner, he comes out to our, our vessel, does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, takes our anchor into the safety of the harbor, and secures it. Now I need a couple volunteers. Alex, Stefan, you want to come up? I know, you're not volunteering. I'm volunteering you. Robbie, come on up. I need, 
I need a few here. I was thinking about that. If I could pull this beam over, it would either be an indication of the weakness of the beam or God wanted to display his power and might through me, his servant. All right. Now, what I would like for you guys to do I want you to come, I want you to push me around. I want to see if you can get me free from my anchor. All right? This is your chance. Everything you've been waiting for. My, my ship is anchored. I am firmly holding fast to my anchor. Now, see if you can get me loose. Now, you're not allowed in the harbor. You you don't you don't get to go in the harbor yet. You haven't earned your earned your spot. So all right, get me loose. Get me loose from the rope. Get me loose from the rope. Come on. All right. Oh God. No, not yet. Somebody push harder. Pull. Oh, pull. I don't think it's. Shoulder. All right. I don't want to be exposing myself here. <laughs> one more time. Give you one last shot. Grab the foot. Pull. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Come on. Right, there we go. <laughs> All right. I think I think I am secure. Thank you, guys. You have a seat. Kind of really hoping that would come down. <laughs> Firm and secure. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls. work that I was in anticipating doing this morning we can't get in the harbor on our own we need a forerunner to go in ahead of us take our anchor into the harbor and even though we may be still out in the middle of the ocean We could be, as it seems, far away from the shore. As far as the harbor is concerned, our status is we're in the harbor. As far as the harbor knows, because our anchor is secured in the harbor, we are in the harbor. Even though we may not be able to yet at this moment get into the harbor because the, the, the water, the tide is still just too low and we can't get there 
our ship is secured in the harbor. And no matter what comes, or no matter what accuser may come and say, well, well, they're not yet there. They are not yet secured in the harbor. They do not have any position to hold in the safety of the harbor. No matter who comes or what comes or anything that anyone could ever say to argue against us, we are at rest in God's inner sanctuary. If, as the author says many times, he uses the word if, if our hope is in Jesus. Imagine untying that rope and the three guys coming up and just letting it kind of dangle out there. Wouldn't be much for them to push me off, get me off course. Where is your hope secured? We are the people of a better hope. Jesus, our forerunner, has also become a high priest forever in the higher order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. The way we draw near to God is by putting our hope in Jesus who as our forerunner took, take our anchor into the harbor and secures it for us. We are the people of a better hope. But are we? I mean, Christ himself, our forerunner, has entered the heavenly sanctuary itself he is seated, as we read, at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's seated in a position of authority. He has defeated and destroyed anything and everything that could separate us from the Redeemer. Anything that would keep us from coming into the presence of God. Jesus himself is the pledge and the promise that we too will one day enter the harbor of God's rest and presence. We have a better hope because we have a better covenant. We have a better hope than those who place their hope in themselves and their ability to live up to the standards in a perfect way. We, we have a better hope, but do we live like we have a better hope? Do we live like our ship is anchored in the safety of God's har harbor or are we living as though there's still something that could come along in this life and knock us off course? Are we living as the people of a better hope? If not, why? Psalm 42.5 was, chapter 42 was in our reading as a, a group that we're doing some reading outside of Hebrews and this verse was in there. It says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's incredible to note in this psalm, in Psalm 42 and 43, that the psalmist actually talks to his soul. 
he starts to actually preach a message to his soul to encourage his own soul. It's kind of a way of doing prayer and meditation. But he asks, he asks his soul, why, my soul, are you downcast? Have you asked your soul why you're downcast? Why, why so disturbed? Why, why is there a storm raging in my soul? Why am I so disturbed? Have you asked? Why, why am I so discouraged? Why am I so afraid? I don't really have anything to fear if my ship is anchored in the harbor. There's nothing that can throw me off course. Why would I be afraid? Why am I doubting? And I think what, what we need to do is instead of not taking these questions and letting God search our soul and know the innermost, deepest parts of who we are and trying to hide them from, the, from our Creator who already knows them, by the way, instead of trying to hide them, we need to let God search us and let Him bring these things up and bring them to light because I think what will happen is that as soon as God's light shines on it, we will realize we have put our hope in something else. Why am I downcast? Well, because my hope was in this thing or that thing. My hope was in my ability or, or my hope was in this person or my hope was in this career. Or my hope was in this fill in the blank. Seek and, and, and discover where we have put our, falsely put our hope and then I would encourage you Write yourself a sermon. When you discover where your hope has been falsely placed, go write yourself a sermon and look up God's promises that address that falsely placed hope and your tendency to drift off into that direction and, and, and do as the psalmist says, put your hope in God. Why are you so downcast? Why are you disturbed with me? Put your hope in God. When you feel the, the, the waves crashing over the ship, wanting to discourage you and frustrate you and make you angry and upset and then a rage of all different kinds, just why are, why are you giving in to the storm? Put your trust in God. 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 And don't be surprised if you preach yourself a sermon to put your trust in God that all of a sudden you start putting yourself in a position to trust God. And everything else starts to change. What happens, I think, is that we tend to put our hope in created things instead of the Creator Himself. And when we put our hope in the imperfect, unreliable, untrustworthy created things, what we discover is we're putting our hope in shifting shadows. We have allowed ourselves to become slaves to the shifting shadows instead of in the perfect, perfectly reliable and wholly trustworthy creator. By these two unchangeable things, God and his word, our hope is in the unchangeable things Sometimes it drifts to the shifting shadows. James 1, 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. 
Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Our big idea is we are the people of a better hope. Our weekly identity statement, my hope is anchored firm and secure to Jesus and the work he completed on my behalf. I'm gonna ask if our band will just come up and play. We're not necessarily gonna sing, but as we close in a time of prayer, I wanna give some people the opportunity to respond. Let's stand together. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to spread out to the tables around the room. And you might be here this morning and you are struggling with hope. You might feel hopeless. If that's you, then I would just invite you to go to one of the tables around the perimeter of the room and pray with one of our prayer team members there and let them help you pray through anything that might be stealing your hope. Maybe you've never placed your hope in Jesus Christ. Your hope has always been in yourself and you would like to do that this morning. This would be a great opportunity to say, I am no longer putting all of my hope in my own ability, but I wanna put my hope in the firm and secure anchor of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise. Thank you for the promise of your son, Jesus Christ, that we have something to anchor ourselves to that is not dependent on our own abilities. Thank you, Father, for your word, which never changes, and you, who never changes. Thank you, Father, that you have given us such a great gift in your son, Jesus Christ, that you have gone ahead of us and that you have paved the way before us. You have blazed the trail ahead of us. And our sole responsibility is to follow in your footsteps, to follow in your path what you have already done. I pray, Father, for anyone here who does not have hope, I pray that you would give them the courage to go right now at this moment and pray with someone. To pray with someone that might help them pray through why they're not experiencing hope. To pray through anything that they may have placed their hope in that is not you. To help see from your perspective anything in their life that they've been looking at. And it's causing them discouragement. I pray, Father, for anyone who has not yet put their hope in you, that has not yet received this gift that you want to give them. I pray, Father, that you move, that you call and you draw, and that as you draw, you give the courage to respond. And I pray, Father, that you do what only you can do, to call and draw them into relationship, into newness of life through you, the free gift that you offer in Jesus Christ. 
to give them the courage to turn away from doing things in their own power and their own strength and, and, and living by our old sinful ways and to instead place all of our belief, all of our hope, all of our confidence in your son, Jesus Christ. And to commit my life from this point forward to his new and better way, new and better hope, new and better life, new and better promises that are only available to me in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your teaching. Thank you for this body. I thank you for the encouragement of this room this morning. I pray, Father, that you would fill us to overflowing now as we leave and go out into a world that has lost hope, a world that has nothing to put their hope in, a world that is desperately seeking for something to, to give them any sense of hope. And I pray, Father, that we as your people would leave this building overflowing with the hope of our salvation being secured by the anchor of Jesus Christ himself, and that we would know that there is nothing that is going to come in the week ahead of us that can knock us off of our course because we are secured in the harbor and the haven of God's rest. And I pray, Father, that not only would we feel that security, but through our lives you would send out the hope that others, that others need and that they might find themselves drawing on the hope that we have and be drawn to you. The hope, the king of hope, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. We thank you, praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.